0: It's not enough to believe that God exists. It's not enough to believe that there is a God. Now, in order for us to be right, in order for us to think right, in order for us to be able to live right, we not only need to know that God exists, but we need to know who He is. We need to have right thoughts about the God who exists. And we need to believe the words that God has spoken. That is the crux of the issue. That is the most important thing for each and every person who is here, each and every person who is alive, each and every person who has ever lived. Do you know who God is? And do you believe what he has said? As we've looked into Romans chapter 9 together, we've been listening in on Paul's answer To the question of if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if he is the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for and that all of the Hebrew prophets had predicted, then why is it that the majority of the Jewish people have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ but instead have rejected him as the Messiah? As Paul has undertaken to explain his answer to that question, he has brought us deep into questions, issues regarding God's election and God's sovereignty in the area of personal salvation. Paul's answer to the question as to why have the Jews not received Jesus, the beginning of his answer is, because they are not elect because God has not chosen them for salvation. And that answer doesn't necessarily sit well with the majority of mankind. We don't like the idea that our eternal destiny could be ultimately dependent upon God's choice and not upon our own choices. And so, as Paul is taking us into this doctrine of election, he has begun to explain that doctrine in more detail. And that's kind of been why we've had these weeks on the subject of unconditional election. Unconditional election is the doctrine that God's choice of who is going to be saved is not based upon anything that we have done, anything that we would do, anything that we could do, but instead it is only based upon the pleasure, the desire of God as to whom he wants to show mercy upon and whom he wants to harden. That doctrine of unconditional election is a difficult doctrine. It's a hard doctrine that raises many questions, and Paul is aware of that. And so he takes time to answer those questions. He faces them head on, and he does not shy away from the difficulties. Now, and when we think about the doctrine of unconditional election, the opposite of that is the doctrine of conditional election. And those who believe in conditional election think that God has chosen who is going to be saved based upon his foreknowledge of those who are going to exercise faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith is, of course, the means by which God saves sinners. It is the means by which the work of Christ is applied to the individual. And therefore, faith is not to be or diminished in any way in its importance in our salvation. However, the difference between conditional and unconditional election is that those who, I believe rightly, hold to unconditional election recognize that God's choice, God's election, is not based upon his foreknowledge of our faith, but that faith itself is a gift from God and does not come from ourselves. Before we dig into Romans today, I'd like to show you a couple of verses that I think very strongly indicate that faith is not something that comes from ourselves ultimately, but this is something that is also a work of God within us. It's part of his grace. It's part of his effectual call in our life. And so Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 of that letter, as we've divided it up into chapters, and he wrote there, It has been granted to you, writing to the believers in Philippi, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So when you've got the granted to you, and then you've got also, that tells us that both of these things have been granted to the Philippians. The faith, the belief that they have in Christ, has been granted to them. That is a grace gift of God their faith in Jesus Christ. Another verse that seems to indicate this quite clearly is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and possibly other churches in that area. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, keyword there, this, is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so the question arises, well, what does the pronoun this refer to in that verse? So, you analyze the grammar of the sentence, the gender of the pronoun and the gender of the nouns that are in the first part of the sentence. You recognize that it cannot refer to any one specific aspect of the first part of the verse, but instead it refers to the whole idea. So, the salvation through faith is not your own doing. That's what the grammar of the text reveals. Salvation by faith is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. So our salvation is from God, our faith is from God, and this is all based upon unconditional election. That is what the Bible teaches. Now, as we've been talking about the doctrine of unconditional election, we've also been talking about God's judicial hardening. If you look in Romans chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles open there, you probably know that's where we're going. I'll remind you where we left off last time in Romans chapter 9, verse 18. The Apostle Paul wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. So then, he, talking about God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now remember, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is answering the question why have the Jews not believed? And Paul's answer has been because they're not elect. Now, that's not a satisfying answer if you believe in conditional election. If Paul believed in conditional election, why would he say, well, they haven't believed because they're not elect? Well, that would make no sense in a conditional election mindset because faith is something that is the precondition for election. And so it'd be illogical to reverse that order. But Paul is not teaching conditional election. He's teaching unconditional election. He's explaining why they haven't believed. And if election is based upon faith, then election or non-election is not an explanation for lack of faith. You see? So the opposite of God showing mercy in this passage is God hardening whomever he wills. God gives faith to those who are elect. He hardens those who are not elect. Now, this pointed out to me last week that a great parallel here is in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28, there, three times at the beginning of the letter, Paul is explaining how God has given up those who are not believing in God to unrighteousness. That God hands over the unbeliever to his own evil desires and this is emphasized throughout this major section here beginning in Romans 1:18 and coming down through the end of the chapter. But specifically he mentions it three times. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then again in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And again in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, their evil desires, their debased mind, did not come from God. God did not create those things within them. That is the creation of the fall. That is what happens as a result of walking away from God and disobedience to God. That is a corruption of the nature that God had created in man. God had created man upright, but he found out many evil devices. And God is not to be blamed for the evil that mankind has fallen into. But what God does do is he allows people to go on in the evil desires that have not been generated by God, but in fact have been generated because they are apart from God. That's where evil desires come from. So the hardening of heart, I think, has a strong parallel here in Romans 1 with God giving them up to these evil passions, those who are not elect. Here I've got two books that have been written on the subject from opposite sides. You've got Norman Geisler who wrote first on the subject, and he wrote Chosen But Free. The subtitle is A Balanced View of Divine Election. And then James R. White wrote a response to Geisler's book on conditional election with his view of unconditional election, and he called it The Potter's Freedom, a defense of the Reformation. And so these two books would be a great duo if you wanted to do an in depth theological study of conditional election versus unconditional election. And of course, My sermon this morning is going to be very much in line with what James White wrote concerning the potter's freedom, and I love that title, the potter's freedom. You'll see why that title is given as we continue through Romans chapter 9 this morning. Our text for today is Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24, and the title for our sermon is Humility Before God. As we get into subjects of, well, why hasn't Israel believed? What is election? What is unconditional election? What is the effective call of God? We get deep into these theological weeds, so to speak, where many people get tripped up. We want to recognize that at the root, at the heart of this, is our stance before God himself. That's where our text today takes us in verses 19 through 24. These verses are going to show us that the real problem here is not intellectual. The real problem is not that these things are difficult to understand. Of course, they are difficult to understand, and I don't claim to understand them all. But that's not our real problem. Our real problem is that we have forgotten what it means for God to be God and for us to be his creatures. That's the real problem. The problem is this. Mankind... While believing in God and living in a Judeo-Christian society that believes in God's existence and not a polytheistic view, but a a monotheistic view of God, we still have the problem of bringing God down to our level and starting to think that God is just an older, bigger, more powerful version of us. As it has been well-equipped, God created man in his image and man has returned the favor. We have created God in our own image and likeness. And and it's hard for us to imagine who God is because we are imagining based upon our knowledge of ourselves. Well, this is what it's like for me to be alive. This is what it's like for me to be intelligent. This is what it's like for me to reason. This is what it's like for me to know things. This is what it's like for me to experience consciousness. And so that must be what it's like for God. And we're reasoning from ourselves to someone who is infinite when we are finite. Someone who has all knowledge and who has never learned anything because there's no need for him to learn because he already knows everything. The gap between us and God is much greater than we have begun to understand. That's really what Romans chapter 9 is about. And I'm going to show you that from the text today. Romans chapter 9, let's look at it. Starting in verse 19, you follow along as I read it out loud down to verse 24. You will say to me then, in response to what Paul has just said in verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, you will come up with this next objection. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the objection arises. Paul knows it. It's the same objection people have been answering ever since man has been wrestling with this question of divine predetermination and human free will if you emphasize divine predetermination, the sovereignty of God, even over the sphere of human choices concerning eternal life and eternal death, well then, how can God find fault if people are only doing what they've been predestined to do? How can God judge anyone for rejecting Christ and hardening the heart when God has predestined them to reject Christ and harden their hearts? This is blaming the victim of God's own predestination. That is the objection. If divine predestination is true, then we are just puppets on a string with no free will. And so you could say the objection amounts to predestination destroys free will. Therefore, God cannot judge if he has determined all human actions ahead of time. Now, as we talk about God's sovereignty, All Christians, all theists, believe that God is sovereign to some extent. God has greater power. God has greater knowledge. God has greater control over what is going on in the universe that he has created than anyone else. He is sovereign in that sense. You go back to the Old Testament and the sovereignty of God was declared over and over again through the Psalms, through the prophets. I put up for you Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 where it is confessed that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, that is God, does according to his will among the host of heaven. So whether you're talking about the heavenly host, celestial powers, or you're talking about earthly rulers, all together are nothing and cannot frustrate the plan of God. None can stay his hand and say to him, What have you done? done god is sovereign verses like that we all clearly see what it is teaching another example second chronicles chapter 20 verse 6 O lord god of our fathers are you not god in heaven you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you Now, the question then comes about, well, how far does this sovereign rule of God extend? Does it extend to our own choices? And if God is sovereign over our choices, then are they real choices that we should be held morally accountable to? Now, think about Paul himself, who wrote Romans chapter 9. Paul knew from personal experience about God's election. The Apostle Paul was not the Apostle Paul. For the first portion of his life, he was Saul of Tarsus, student of Gamaliel, persecutor of the Christians, one who had high hopes and ambitions to be on the Sanhedrin and be one of the leading teachers among rabbinic Judaism. That's who he was. That was his passion. That was his desire. That was his heart. His heartbeat was to destroy Christians' in order to show his zeal for his traditions. God changed that in a moment. God turned his life upside down and turned his desires on their head so that instead of desiring to put Christians to death, he desired to make as many Christians as he possibly could and he put more work and more effort to that end than anyone else among the first century church. Remember what... Was said to the man whom God chose to bring the gospel to the apostle Paul, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul wasn't seeking for God, but Jesus Christ sought out Saul, and that's what made the difference. How all this works out is complicated. Paul's will was not violated. God did not force Paul to do anything against his own desires. When Jesus Christ appeared to Paul, his world was shaken. What he thought he knew was completely undone. And he had to form a new worldview based upon a new fundamental reality that he'd come face to face with. And as he grew in that knowledge of who Jesus Christ was, his zeal grew and he became the man that he was by his own will, by his own desires, not being forced, not a puppet on a string. And yet God is the one who caused it. I'd like you to think with me about how something is caused. You know, we we tend to think, well, what's the ultimate cause for this or for that? And what's the ultimate cause of human choices? Well, that is something that is difficult. Let's take a, a more simple example to begin with. What caused these pews that you're sitting in to be made? Well, there's a number of causes at work here. You could think of the instrumental cause, one of the causes that Aristotle talked about, that the instruments that were used, the tools that fashioned these pews, the carpenter's tools, were what caused them to become the pews that they are now, out of the, the materials that were there before. But, That's not all there is to the story of what caused these pews to be made. Think about the carpenter who used those tools. Those tools wouldn't have been able to do it by itself without the skillful hand of the carpenter to be able to use the tools to make the pews. But that's not all there is to the story either. That carpenter would have never made these pews unless someone had designed these pews and said, this is what we want you to make. And so the idea in the mind of the designer you could say, is what caused these pews to be made. But another cause, these pews would not have been made if churches were not interested in buying them. So the market forces, the the supply and the demand, is what caused these pews to be made. You can go on and, and explore causality and recognize that causality is not one simple thing. It's a multiplicity of things that come together. And you could even go so far as to say that it was the sovereign will of God that caused these pews to be made. And how was the sovereign will of God brought into effect? How did it come to be? Well, through the market forces, through the tools of the carpenter, through the plan and the mind of the designer. Through all of these means, God's will was done in that these pews were made for this church. When it comes to what causes a person to make the choices that they make, it's not just one cause. There's a multiplicity of causes that are going into effect there. And yes, God is one of those causes. As the scripture says, God hardens whom he wants, and he has mercy on whomever he wills. I don't pretend to explain or understand that, it's more complicated than the construction of a pew. But consider this verse, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. The pews, the earth, the sky, the rain. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. What does it mean that God made the wicked? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God has made them wicked. God has made the wicked, but he is not the one who has made them to be wicked. How does that work? Good question. We'll ask God someday. But I'll show you this from James chapter 1. How do I know that God has not made the wicked to be wicked? That he is not the one that has caused them to be morally evil? Well, James chapter 1 tells us how to understand this. Come back to that in your Bible. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 9. We'll be back there shortly. But I'd like you to come with me to James chapter 1. I just put part of the verse here. I want you to see the whole context. James 1 verses 13 through 15 The scripture says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So no sinner can tell God, you made me sin. God says, I did not make you sin. You sinned willfully by following your own desires. And I did not create those desires. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The darkness of evil desires does not come from God in any way. Then where does it come from? Good question. We'll have to ask God someday. It's somewhat of a mystery. But we do know God is not manipulating people in order to get them to do evil against their own will nor is God creating evil desires within anyone. We know that for certain. But that's been some of my answer to the question. Let's, let's get away from these other verses and let's get back to Romans chapter 9. When I say my answer, I mean answers that I've pulled from other places in Scripture. But let's look at Romans chapter 9 and how Paul addresses this objection. The objection to the unconditional election of God is, then how can God still judge the sinner when the sinner is just doing what God has predestined the sinner to do? And Paul's answer is, you don't get to ask that question. You don't get to ask that question. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now I'm pretty sure this is not how most seminaries teach you how to answer this question. But Paul is not retreating one step. He's not intimidated by the question. Instead of going on the defensive, Paul goes on the offensive, which is sometimes a good good idea. You know, we Christians sometimes get so defensive. We start to forget that our position is strong. Their position is weak. And so you might want to get on the offensive from time to time and attack the evil and the lies that is what their thoughts and ideas are coming from instead of trying to justify the goodness of your position. Sometimes it's good to point out the evil of their position. And that's what Paul does here. He says, this questioning of God is a misunderstanding of the creator and the created relationship. Paul goes on to use a well-familiar prophetic and Jewish intertestamental picture of the potter and the clay, talking about the thing molded answering back to its molder or the pot answering back to the potter. Now, when Paul makes this analogy of the potter and the clay, mankind's natural response is, hold on a second, that analogy stinks because a pot is not alive. A pot does not have emotions and thoughts and will and we do. So stop comparing me to an inanimate object. Right? William Barclay, who's a Christian commentator, he actually goes so far here to criticize the text of Scripture and he says, this is a bad analogy that Paul uses. That's his quote. He calls it a bad analogy. He says, there's a difference between a human being and a lump of clay. This analogy would be the mark of a tyrant and not of a loving father. That God does not treat man like a lump of clay, but as a loving father. And so he excuses Paul for this bad analogy by saying, well, you look and you see at the beginning of the chapter that Paul was under great emotional duress. He's trying to explain this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart as to why the Jews have not believed. And so you have to forgive him here. He's he's gone astray. He's made a bad analogy just because he's so worked up emotionally. Well, that's a a pretty low view of Scripture, my friends. If that's going to be your approach to the Bible, then you might as well just throw it out because then you have no authority. You have no revelation. You have no word of God if the emotions of the writer can lead to bad analogies and untrue sentences. That is not how we approach Scripture. We want to have humility before God, and we want to have humility before the text. If you ever catch me calling a logical argument in Scripture bad, then fire me. There's no bad logic in here. There's no bad analogies. This is God's Word that we're talking about. Who does William Barclay think he is to say that the Word of God has a bad analogy? You say, well, Timothy, you still have to answer the question, right? We are not inanimate objects. So how is this a good analogy? Well, perhaps, compared to God, you are. Perhaps, perhaps, compared to God, you are inanimate. Because God is so animate that anything in comparison to Him is inanimate. Perhaps that's the answer. Consider some verses with me. Come back to the book of Job. Job chapter 38. Right before Psalms, you've got Job... A long book full of a lot of arguments and reasoning concerning the problem of evil. And as Job and his friends wrestle with the situation that Job finds himself in, where he seems to have been afflicted and smitten by God, not for anything that Job has done, but just because God wants to, and it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem just, it doesn't seem right, Job gets to the point, he gets a little worked up, I can say that about Job, where he says, I wish God were here so I could have a little conversation with him. I wish God was here so I could challenge him on this and ask him, why have you done this to me? And so, in the classic tradition of be careful what you wish for, God does show up to have a conversation with Job, but it's not really a conversation, it's kind of one-sided. More of a monologue. So the Lord answers Job back in Job chapter 38. And God comes in a whirlwind, which is intimidating enough. And he says in Job 38 verse 2, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, That would be Job. Uh, Raise your hand, Job. That's you. You're the one who's darkening counsel by words without knowledge. People like to talk on things they don't know about. Job was running his mouth on things he didn't know. God calls him out on it. God says, I'm going to question you, and you answer my questions, okay? Let's get this straight. You don't question me. I'm going to ask you the questions, and you tell me the answers. And then you get God's questions in chapter 38 and chapter 39. Good questions. I encourage you to read them. And you come to chapter 40. And God has this question for Job. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Do you think you're capable of arguing with God? Do you have that much confidence in in your logic, your reasoning, your knowledge, your, your wisdom, and your perception? Are you ready to carry on an argument with God? A lot of people do. And you know what? Job was a godly man, a righteous man. He was not an enemy of God. He was not a hater of God. But even Job was tempted to think that he had the right to question God and that God owed him an answer. It's not just the ungodly who need to be put in their place. It's us. You and me. Today, we need to be put in our place do you know who you're dealing with? I don't think we do. This is unique to the Bible. You don't find this in much other religious literature. This kind of creature-creator distinction. God is careful to maintain it. I come down a few more verses and, and look at what God says in verse 8 of Job chapter 40. Will you even put me in the wrong Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God is righteousness. God is goodness. There's no standard that God holds himself to. He's the standard. Are you going to condemn goodness and righteousness himself in order that you might justify yourself? What insanity. What foolishness is in the heart of man? And this is in our heart. We're not that different from Job. Have you ever been tempted to put God in the wrong so that you could be considered right? Isaiah chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I've got a lot of verses this morning. Listen, God uses this analogy a lot, it's not just one place, it's all throughout the prophets. Look at Isaiah ten fifteen. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? So God's relationship to you can legitimately be compared to the relationship between a man and his axe. God is so much higher than us. There's nothing wrong with that logic. Isaiah 29, verse 16 puts it this way. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He didn't make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. God made you. He formed you. God created the human brain and the central nervous system. And are we going to use that brain and that nervous system to complain against God and tell him he doesn't know what he's doing? Insanity. Pure insanity. That's what sin drives us to. Another one. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, your work has no handles. The pot doesn't answer back to God. We need to be humbled. We need to be humbled. It's not enough to believe God exists. It's not enough to make a God in our own image and likeness who is answerable and accountable to us. That's not being a true theist. A true theist is somebody who understands that God is God and there is no one like Him. He does whatever He wants and no one can say to Him, what have you done? He is not accountable to you. He is not accountable to anyone. He's not accountable to anything. He is only acting according to His own nature and His own desires and His own goodness. That's what everything He does is from. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Finally, we get to the end of Isaiah's book and, and the people are not arguing, they're not fighting with the potter, but instead they're worshiping and honoring the potter. And it says, But now, O Lord, You, You are our Father. We are the clay and You are our potter and we are all the work of Your hand. That should be the heart cry of each one of us every day of our lives. This is the heart in its right place before God. And when the heart is right before God, then every spiritual blessing is able to flow from the throne of God to that humble heart. You go up to the top of mountains. It's cold, barren, dry. No life past that tree line. The air is thin, Well, that's where the proud atheist stands. Dead. No life. You get down into the valleys and all the waters are streaming down from the mountains into those valleys and the air is rich, the soil is rich, and the the plants are growing and bearing fruit. That's where the righteous are. Down in the valley, the humble place before God. Your humility or your pride is going to determine whether you experience the blessing of God or the curse of God. God looks on everyone who is proud in heart and abases them. But God is near to the humble, to the lowly, and the contrite of spirit. This is what is really important in our passage. Come back to Isaiah chapter 9. So we've looked at the objection in verse 19. We've been reminded of our place in verses 20 and 21. And now I want to end by looking at God's good purpose in all of this in verses 22 to 24. God acts according to his own good pleasure. And it's good. Very, very good. Paul says, starting in verse 22, What if? And that what if is the beginning of a conditional sentence. But you'll notice when we get down to the end of verse 23, you've got the dash there after glory. Glory. And so Paul doesn't complete his conditional sentence. He puts the first part of the conditional sentence there. He leaves the second part unspoken. He doesn't complete it. And so commentators have tried to figure out, well, what would have been the completion of his thought if he would have completed it? And from the context and from the logic and the argument, you can get a pretty good idea of what Paul meant as the conclusion of this what-if statement. And the what-if would lead to, can anyone really complain about it? If God is doing this for this reason then how could you ever find fault or complain about it? That's the big idea, I think, in these verses. So let's look at them. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So how has God worked in hardening, And showing mercy. Why has God done things the way that He has? God could have just shown His wrath, He could have made His power known like He did in the flood, and have wiped out sinners from the face of the earth. God has been willing to show his wrath when he destroyed Egypt. God has been willing to show his wrath when he destroyed Sihon, king of Bashan that we talked about last week. God was willing to show his wrath when he destroyed the Canaanites and gave Israelites their cities and their land. And God was willing to show his wrath even in the destruction of the Israelites at the incident of the golden calf in Exodus 32 that we looked at last week. God has been willing to show his wrath throughout Scripture, but he has held back from pouring out his wrath on all of those vessels of wrath, he's been holding back from a universal cataclysm against sinners, like that which happened in the flood, for a purpose. Verse 23: In order. Whenever you see that purpose statement, in order of that, for the purpose, you've got to pay special attention to that. Purpose is important. So, what is God's purpose? And holding back his wrath and enduring with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It's in order that the purpose is to make, known, to make known the riches of his glory. He wants to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Here's something that the Bible is very clear on. We cannot miss and is of utmost importance. God works to make himself known. God works to make himself known. If you ever have that why question, God, why this? God, why that? The answer is going to come back from Scripture in order to make myself known. That is a strong desire in the heart of God. It explains his actions. If you look at the Scripture and say, well, why did God do this? Why did God say that? Why is God doing this? Why did he not do that? The answer is going to come back because God wanted to make himself known. Let me show you some examples. All right, so then you will know this phrase in the prophets, particularly in Ezekiel, is of great importance. And I want to walk you through these verses in Ezekiel. So let's turn back there. Ezekiel chapter 7 to begin with. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, the major prophets of the Old Testament. If you're going to understand the New Testament, you've got to know your Old Testament. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament constantly throughout Romans 9 through 11. If you don't have a good theology of the Old Testament, you're not going to be able to come to good conclusions that are there in the New Testament. So Ezekiel chapter 7, I want you to follow along with me as I read verses 4 through 9. Here, the section is titled there at the beginning of chapter 7, The Day of the Wrath of the Lord. And he's talking about the end and God sending his anger and judging according to his ways. And we pick it up in verse 4. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God is working to make himself known. Keep going. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come to you. O inhabitant of the land, the time has come. The day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways, while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. God is working to make himself known. He continues this throughout chapter 25, but I want you to come with me then to, Chapter 36, all right? we're going to skip a little bit for time's sake. Ezekiel chapter 36. And these aren't even all the verses in Ezekiel. I just picked out a few that I thought we might have time for. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 11. Pick it up in verse 8 to catch the context. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. So now we've got the flip side. Instead of the judgments and the wrath being poured out upon them, now you've got the grace and the mercy being poured out upon them. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in the former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He pours out his wrath on vessels of wrath. He pours out his mercy on vessels of mercy. And the purpose in both of them is to make himself known. That's why God does what he does. Look at chapter 37, verse 14. A great prophecy, a blessing. God says in verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Same thing in Isaiah forty-nine twenty-three through 26. I encourage you to take a look at that as well. And then this, in Ezekiel chapter 36. Stay right there in Ezekiel 36. And you look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake. Okay? Get this straight, Israel. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Why did God bless Israel? It's because... God wanted to act for his name, his reputation, his honor. The people were blaspheming God. They didn't know who God was. They were giving the glory to the idols instead of to the living God who created the heaven and the earth. And so God acted in such a way that first Israel and then the nations would know who God is. And you say, well, that seems pretty selfish of God that he's going to destroy peoples and he's going to do all this stuff just so that people can know who he is. Well, that would be selfish for someone like you or me, but we are not God. Think about this. Jesus Christ said, eternal life is knowing God. When God makes himself known, not only is he pleased because he's getting the honor and the glory that is due to him, but it also means life for those who know him. It means life. That's not the way it is for me. You can know me and it makes no difference. But if you know God, that makes a difference. God is not a man. You say, well, it would be wrong for me to destroy a nation just so that people would know my name and have fear of me. Of course, you're not God. And God's not you. It is right for God to do what he has done with Israel and with the nations in order to make himself known. For many reasons, and I've just listed two of them. What is the highest good? What is the highest good? That's an important question. Okay? Well, I try not to think about those things. Uh, you know, I, I just want to go to my job and I, I just want to... You know, uh, Be a good neighbor, and I I want to raise my kids. And you know, it's not for me to, to deal with such difficult questions as what is the highest good? Don't be a fool. If you don't know what goodness is, you know nothing. How are you going to be a good husband if you don't know what goodness is? How are you going to be a good father if you don't know what goodness is? You better know what goodness is. What is the highest good? Well, the humanist defines it this way The highest good is that which brings the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people. That's the humanist definition. Are you a humanist? The Bible's definition is the greatest good is God making himself known. The greatest good is God making himself known. It's good for God good for us good for everybody christ wants us to develop people who understand this you must understand this this is what it all comes from this is what it all flows from god is god and you are not get that straight or the bible will be full of mysteries One last passage I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we're going to end today. I'd like to read one of the most blessed passages in all of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, or let's go through 14, 3 through 14. And and notice in verse 6 and in verse 12 and in verse 14, this repeated phrase, to the praise of his glory. What's the highest goal? The praise of his glory. Because that's what happens when his name is known. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of his glory.